We're going to be looking at the book of James today, James chapter 4. My intention was to be preaching about women in ministry as we look at leadership in the church and ministry in the church, and the Lord changed that this week and impressed upon me this passage that um, we're going to look at today. So James chapter 4. We're going to read just verses 13 through 15. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. You may recognize this. It's talking about how short our life is. But James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, the Bible says this, Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city. And continue there a year, and buy, and sell, and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time, and then vanishes away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live, and do this or that. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll look at what the Lord has for us today. Our Father, we thank you that you love us, and we thank you that you've given us your word to encourage us and to teach us, even to exhort us and to help us understand how we ought to live. And so, Lord, as we look at your word this morning and we consider the time that we have on this earth, I pray that you would just help us to be serious about the lessons you have for us. Help us to understand the truth that you want us to learn today, and just open our minds and our hearts to receive it. Lord, I pray that you would use me now to speak truth, that your word might be proclaimed. Lord, speak through me and use your word to touch our hearts, I pray. And Lord, may you be honored and glorified in this time, in all that we do and say. And may the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, be lifted up. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning in James chapter 4, Um, This passage is used many times to talk about thinking within the scope of the Lord's will. What is the Lord's will for us? And we say, you know, if the Lord wills, we will do that. And that's what verse 15 tells us. If the Lord wills, then we'll do this or we'll go this place or, you know, we'll plan these things. You know, the Proverbs tells us that man plans in his heart and yet God carries those things out. God brings the results And it's not always what we expect. And the the title of my message this morning is, Today is the Day. It's a phrase I think that people use a lot, and yet they don't really mean it. Uh, If you think about New Year's resolutions, I don't know how many of you try to make those, but as a whole, New Year's resolutions are probably the biggest failure in people's lives. If we wanted to judge their truthfulness by their New Year's resolutions, no wonder the Bible calls us all liars. Okay, because we hardly get through the first week, let alone the first day sometimes. Sometimes we never even start them. But this, this phrase, today is the day, you know, we make that statement sometimes, many times in jest, but sometimes we try to be serious, you know, today is the day I'm going to start my diet. How serious are we about that? You know, today is the day I'm going to make these changes in my life that I know I need to change. And that lasts maybe 24 hours, if it lasts that long. And so this phrase, today is the day, has become kind of a joke in society. You know, if you look on social media, you'll see it 
in these memes that people put up as a joke. Today is the day, yeah, right. And we, because we never follow through. Or we procrastinate, and that's a huge problem. You know, I wrote a little thing in your bulletin that they did a college survey about procrastination. And 80 to 95% of college students say they procrastinate. That, that's huge. Okay, that's just college students. Now, I know their situation is a little different than us, but that's when we form habits of our lives. And if we form those procrastination habits, then usually it's because we had them before, and it's going to carry forward into our life. And I don't know that there's really many people that are exempt from procrastinating. We all do it because there's hard things or tough things or tough decisions that we need to make and we put it off because it's not the convenient thing to do right now. Well, this morning I want to share a few passages of Scripture with you, starting here in James chapter 4, that help us to see the seriousness of this phrase, today is the day. Okay, we need to be serious about this phrase in our Christian lives because today is the day that God has called us to whatever he has called us to. We can't put it off. We can't treat it as if it's not something serious in our lives. Today is the day that God has called us to be what he wants us to be. And so as we look at this passage in James chapter 4, it tells us life is a vapor. And there's the reason why we need to be serious about today. Because life is a vapor. And the idea that he gives us is that you have this pot of water that's boiling on the stove, and you see the steam come off of it, and how long does the steam last? How long do you see it? And how long do you really think about it as you stand there and watch it? Okay, you probably don't even think about it. It's just kind of something we do. We watch the steam boil off and it goes up into the air and it's gone in five seconds or less. And that's the picture that James 4 gives us is that our lives are like that vapor. We could be gone at any moment. We have no guarantees of tomorrow. And that's why James 4.15 says we should approach our perspective our lives from the perspective of God's will, not our own purpose, because we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. God is in control of all of that. Now, that's a comforting thing, because when we know God's in control and God will have his will in our lives, okay, then we can walk in his path. We can have his blessings. We can be and go where God wants us to be and to do, do the things that God wants us to do, okay? So there's blessing attached to that, but there's also a seriousness for us that we have to think about. It's not my purpose that's going to be fulfilled in my life. You know, I can make all these plans, but really it's up to God's will. If he allows it, if he wills it, then that's what will happen. That's what I will be able to accomplish. And so we have to put that in perspective of God's will again and think about what are the important things in our life? What are the priorities that we need to really consider every day as we get up in the morning? What are the important things that if I didn't have tomorrow, I have to do this today? And God says, it's my will. Think about it from God's will perspective. Now, let's go back in into uh, first Peter, first Peter is just a book away. First Peter If you go to first Peter chapter one, 
We're going to go to the beginning of 1 Peter. And we're going to go to verse 18 this morning. We're going to start there. I want to read 1 Peter 18 through verse 25, because this has kind of the same message that we read in James chapter 4. In verse 18, sorry about that, verse 18 says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. He's talking about Jesus Christ, obviously, coming to the earth. And then verse 21, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God, seeing that ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof fadeth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word by which by the gospel is preached unto you. The Apostle Peter here, in verse 24 tells us this same idea that James 4 tells us. He says, he uses the analogy here of grass. We are like grass. It grows up, the hot sun comes out, it withers away, it's gone. Okay, it's not going to last. And that's the idea of our life. Your life is so temporary, it is so fleeting. We have to keep that in mind. And the focus of this passage is not so much just remember that your life is fleeting. The focus of this passage is because your life is fleeting, remember what is the substance of your life. What should it be focused on? And what he focuses on in this passage is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is the most important thing in our lives that we need to make sure of. In verse 18, he says, you know that you weren't redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. And he tells us, salvation's important, and you need to realize you can't buy it. It can't be bought with money. Silver and gold may seem like an important thing in our lives on this earth, and yet it doesn't do us any good as far as our spiritual well-being is concerned. You cannot purchase your way to heaven. You can't purchase your way to heaven by giving to the church. You can't buy your way to heaven by giving to the poor. You can't buy eternal life no matter how much money you have or how much you give away. That's what Peter says here. He says, so that's not it. That's not what's going to help you. And then he says um, in verse 18, that you weren't redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition of your fathers. Now, here's another way people think they can be saved is this, what he calls vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers. And I'm afraid there's a lot of people who have been deceived into thinking the traditions of the church, whatever church that may be, is what's going to get them to heaven. It's not. He's talking about, specifically here, about the laws of the Pharisees, the Talmud, 
Okay, it was developed during the Second Temple period, and when Christ came, it basically became the foundation for Jewish religious life. And the Pharisees kept it religiously. There were 613 laws that they were supposed to keep. And remember, the, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what does the law say? And he said, well, love God, love your neighbor, you know, the Ten Commandments, all this stuff. And Jesus said, you've spoken right. And he says, well, I've done all that. And Jesus didn't say, no, you haven't. Jesus said, well, then the only thing that's left is to sell everything you have and follow me. Give to the poor and follow me. But this tradition is what they were basing their salvation on. The good works, the following the law, the living a certain standard of life. Our lifestyle makes us Christian was their viewpoint. And I'm afraid there's a lot of people who take that view today. What I do defines my Christianity. It defines my eternal destination. And yet Peter says, that's not what saves you. You can't buy your way to heaven. You can't work your way to heaven. In verse 19, he says, here's the remedy, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Christ referred to the Pharisees as whitewashed sepulchers because they had this outward performance, this outward giving, this outward religious lifestyle, and yet they were missing the substance of real salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ. Christ is the only answer that we can look to to find salvation. It's not the church. It's not a lifestyle. It's not giving to the poor. It's, it's Christ alone. In verse 21, it says, it's his sacrifice, as we trust in the sacrifice of Christ. It says, we, in who by him we do believe in God. It's not enough just to believe that God exists. We have to believe that Jesus died for us, that he is God, and it's only through him that we can come to God. That's the gospel that he's talking about here. And so through Christ's work, not our own, is our salvation found. Because Christ only accepts the perfect sacrifice of Christ, the perfect work of Christ, and our work is not going to be acceptable in God's sight. In fact, Isaiah tells us that the best we can do, our most righteous works, are as filthy rags in the sight of God. And then verse 22 tells us the result of trusting in Christ for salvation. Here's the test. Have you truly trusted Christ? Verse 22 says, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. If you want to test and ask this question, all right, how do I know I'm truly saved? How do I know it really works for me? That the Bible means what it says, that God truly saved me. He's, he's cleansed me. I am on my way to heaven, and I am absolutely certain about that. Because 2 Corinthians tells us that if we are in Christ, we will be new creatures. And here's the evidence of that in verse 22. We will have unfeigned love for the brethren. Unfeigned means not fake. It means sincere. So you want to test your salvation? You want to see if it's real? Look at your attitude toward other people. Look at how you treat other people. Because Peter says, 
this unfeigned, this sincere, a real love for other people is the demonstration of the gospel at work in your life. That's how you know that God has changed you. Because apart from salvation, as human beings, we are selfish creatures. We want to live for ourselves. We want to protect ourselves. We want to promote ourselves. We want to gain for ourselves. Everything is about me. That's human nature. That's what we call the old fallen nature. That's what the curse brought to to the world and to mankind when Adam sinned. We are selfish creatures. And so without Christ, we will live for ourselves. Everything will be about me. And Peter says, those who are truly changed, they are purified in our souls, and now they demonstrate this unfeigned, this sincere, true love for our brothers. And he says, not only a true love, look at the last part of verse 22, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So it's not an occasional thing. It's not something that just shows up every once in a while. This is the the definition of our life, is that we love other people. So we are born again, verse 23 tells us, to show the love of God to other people. And he goes on in verse 23, and he says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, talking about all the worldly things we can do or money we can give, but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Now, we read that phrase, the word of God, and we say, well, yeah, God has given us his word in in the Bible, and his word shall last forever. But when you go to John chapter 1, it starts with this phrase, in the beginning was the word, and the word is capitalized with capital W. It's talking about Christ. See, this is the written revelation of God to us, to point us to Christ. We learned a song a few months ago, God has spoken, and it says God has whispered through creation. God has spoken through his scriptures, but God has shouted through the Savior. Because even though we have the revelation of creation around us and we have the revelation of God's word, it is all fulfilled, it all comes together in Christ. He is the ultimate revelation of God to us. And when Peter says his word, that by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever, he is referencing the truth that he gives us, but it all points to Christ. And so it's Christ, literally, who lives forever. And if we want to have eternal life, we must be in him. Because we only live in the life of Christ as, as the basis of our salvation. So John, or I'm sorry, Peter talks about the, the evidence of that. As we live in Christ, we will love one another. He goes on, it's not corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And then he comes that phrase, for all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower... Um, the, the grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. So our salvation is the primary priority of our lives. And, you know, we, we talk about this when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We say, you know, Paul says, examine yourself. Number one, whether you be in the faith. This is something that we need to make sure of. If you have doubts about your salvation. You need to examine yourself. 
Has God changed me? Am I trusting anything else other than the sacrifice of Christ and his blood shed on the cross to pay for my sin? Because if there's anything else that I'm throwing into that equation, then I'm deceived. I've missed it. And I don't have the promise of eternal life. It only comes in Jesus Christ. And when we have that in our lives, Peter says, it'll show. It'll show by how we treat one another. Now, I know you've probably heard me preach this before, probably many times. But the reason I'm preaching it again is because this is the most important thing in our lives. And the people that are here need to hear this, obviously. I need to hear this. The people that are going to hear this later or listening online, they need to hear this. We all need to remember, because our life is as grass, because we are not guaranteed tomorrow, if we are not sure today that we are saved, we are in serious trouble. And so Peter reminds us here, our life is as grass. You don't have the guarantee of tomorrow. If you don't take care of it today, you may not ever have a chance again. True eternal life is found only in Jesus Christ. It's in him alone that we find salvation. And 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul is writing to Corinthian believers and, and those who are not believers. And he says, this is the Lord talking, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted. In the day of salvation I have succored thee, or listened to thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We don't have tomorrow to look to. It has to be done today. So today, you need to make sure that you are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, if you're saved, you'll take up your cross and follow me. You will sacrifice yourself in loving other people, and it will show in your life. That's the test. Now, what about all those people who say they're saved, who have this guarantee of salvation, okay? And you say you love others, but your life then is marked with arguments, with problems, with disagreements with people, because you have to be right. You have to prove your point. Go to James chapter 4 again. We started in James chapter 4. We're going to go back there, but we're going to look at the beginning of the chapter, because James talks about this. James chapter 4, right at the beginning, verse 1. And James asked this question. He says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Where are all these fights coming from, all these arguments, all this disagreement and dissension and division in your lives? He's talking to believers here. He says, Why is this here? And then he answers the question. Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? And he explains it in verse 2, in 3, he says, Ye lust and ye have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. He said, here's the problem. The reason you can't get along with people, even though you call yourselves believers, is because you care more about what you want than what other people need. Again, it's all about me. He says, it comes from your lusts, my desires, things that I want. 
things that please me. And then he says, you lust and you have not. There's things that we want in our lives from people. And we can't ever have them. And so what do we do? We get angry. We get upset. We get frustrated with people. He says, you, you kill. He says, this is how far it drives you. You kill each other, trying to get what you want. And even though we kill and desire to have, he says, you cannot obtain. You fight in your war. He says, this escalates even to full-scale wars, not just on uh, individual or family level, but this goes to nations as well. Why do nations go to war? Because one person or one group has something the other one wants. And this is what drives us to arguments and to problems in our lives. And then in verse 3, he says, I'm sorry, the end of verse 2, he says, Yet you have not because you ask not. See, we don't ask God. We don't depend on God. We don't recognize God as the giver of all things. We try to get it ourselves. He says that's where problems start. And you never have them because you never ask God who is the giver. He says, but then you get desperate. Verse 3, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. What are we asking for and why are we asking for it? Most of the stuff that causes arguments in our lives is stuff that we really don't need and maybe we shouldn't have, but we want it anyway. And we want it so that I can be happy, so that I can be pleased, so that I can feel good, and I don't care what it costs anybody else. And that's why we argue. That's why we get angry with people. The root of anger and bitterness comes down to this truth. Someone else didn't do what I wanted them to do. That's it. That's why we get angry at people. That's why we're bitter at people. Because someone else didn't do what I wanted them to do. And so I'm not happy with them. Now, it can come in many forms. It can come in forms of expectations that we set for people that are never met. And I say this often. If you set expectations for people according to your own standards, you will always be disappointed. And that's why we're not happy. That's what James is saying here. It's all about you. That's why you're not happy. That's why you have fights. That's why you have arguments. But he gives us the solution. In fact, in verse 4, he says, You're adulterers and adulteresses. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Now, we tend to take that verse and we put it in the context of stuff, but this is in the context of our relationship with other people. And if we treat other people the way the world treats them, because we're living for ourselves and therefore we get angry, we argue, we we cause division and dissension in other people's lives, we get bitter against them, it's because of downright selfishness. That's what it comes to, and that's the way the world lives. And James says, well, when you live for your lusts, you literally have made yourself an enemy of God. Not just kind of out of his battle or his projects or his work, but you have made yourselves an enemy of God. Now, see, this is the other side of the coin of loving each other. When Christ loved us, He took up his cross, and that's why he says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross daily and follow me. That means sacrifice myself. That means give up, literally, not my breath, 
and my heartbeat life, the physical life that I own, but all of the desires that I want for myself so that I can serve other people because that's what Christ did. And here's the other side of that. We fight, we war, we argue, we get bitter, we get angry because I didn't get what I wanted. And you're the problem. So I'm going to get angry at you. And we make ourselves an enemy of God, James says. Verse 5, he says, Do you think the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? He's talking about the spirit that God has put in us, desires for us to live according to his leading. He wants us to follow him, to serve him, to love him and loving other people, and yet we love ourselves. Verse 6 goes on, but he giveth more grace. See, there's the solution. God has grace for every single one of us. God wants to pour grace into our lives. Because when we understand God's grace and what he has given us, even though we didn't deserve it, that makes us think twice about what we expect and what we expect others to do for us. And so he says in verse 6, God gives more grace. And that means that God's grace is the remedy to all this selfishness and fighting that we continually find ourselves in. See, in God's grace, we find salvation. It's through God's grace that we find love for other people. It's through God's grace that we are able to overlook the offenses that people cause to us or commit against us. That's what the Bible means when it says love covers a multitude of sins. And it's through God's grace that we stop looking out for ourselves and defending ourselves and protecting ourselves and accumulating for ourselves and start living for other people. But there's a qualification here because in verse 6 he starts by saying, but God gives more grace. But then he goes on and he says, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud but gives grace to who? The humble. That means I have to lower myself, give up myself, be ready to sacrifice myself. That's when God gives grace. See, the grace of God that brings us to salvation is effective in us when we stop trying to earn salvation ourselves and we basically go to God and say, God, I give up. I can't do it. I need you. And it's the same in our lives as believers. We have to stop trying to be better people and let God pour his grace into us through his spirit and let his spirit do the changing rather than us trying to conform to some standard. Because when we try to conform to a standard, usually the standard that we have in our mind is not the standard that God wants for us. And then we impose that on other people. And then when they don't follow it, we get upset. And hence, we have James chapter 4. He says, submit yourselves, in verse 7, therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That means that selfish living is the devil's work. We are literally, excuse me, we are literally accomplishing Satan's work if we live for ourselves and cause division with other people because of it. 
And I've said this before, in the church, Satan doesn't need to destroy the church to accomplish his purpose. All he needs to do is infiltrate it with a few of his agents who are willing to live selfishly and cause problems, and it will tear it down from the inside. We don't need outside influences because we have so many people who call themselves believers who are destroying the church from inside. And this is the reason, because we live for ourselves. He says in verse 8, draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Now, have you ever gotten to this point in your life where you just look at yourself and you look at the way you're living and you just say, God, I hate what I am. And the reason we get to that point is because we're trying to make ourselves something and it never works out. And he says, you have to come to God. We have to clean our hearts, clean our hands. It's symbolic of cleansing away all of me. I'm going to draw to God. I'm going to let him take care of me. I'm going to let him do his work in me. I'm going to let him show me how to live through his word. And I'm going to be sorry, literally sorry, to the point of weeping for my sin. I mean, when is the last time that your sin has distressed you so much that it caused you to weep? And yet God weeps over our sin all the time. That's why Christ died. And yet we don't think very much of sins. We commit them all the time. It's like, oh, well, yeah, God forgive me. He says, you need to be serious about this. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. We have to get to the point where we are going to admit that we are selfish people, that we are wrong in how we act and in what we do and how we treat other people, and we have to be willing to admit that we have a problem. It's called selfishness. It's called sin in my life, and God is the only remedy, and we have to be willing to give it up and give up all the animosity that we have toward the people that didn't live up to our expectation, and then let God change us. And there's what keeps people from actually getting to this point. Because if we're human beings, most of us, by nature, are afraid to really give it all to God because we are afraid of what we are going to have to change. But God says that's the only way it's going to work. If you're willing to give it all up. And in verse 11, here's the result when we submit to God. He says, speak not evil one of another, brethren. Now this can include gossip, complaining, being mean to each other, outbursts of anger. I mean, anything that comes under evil communication. Speak not evil one of another. It means don't speak evil to each other or about each other. (coughs) We have to stop judging people because they don't meet our standard. And he goes on, he says, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy, who art thou that judgest another? 
when we treat each other with disdain and with scorn and with just anger or whatever, it's because we're judging them. That's what James tells, or yeah, that's what James 4 says. The reason you're angry is because they did not meet your expectation of how to treat you or what to do for you or what to give to you, and now you're judging them because they didn't meet your standard. And by doing that, we have put ourselves in the place of God. Because the Bible says here, there's only one lawgiver. God's the judge. God gives the law. And when we give ourselves to the Lord and let him do his work in us, then we will stop speaking evil about each other and to each other. We won't gossip. We won't go around judging other people. We won't be proclaiming other people's guilt because we will realize how guilty we are ourselves. That's what it means to humble ourselves. We have to realize that we ourselves are guilty, that we're sinful. We have no right to proclaim on judgment on other people. And so all of the problems that we have with other people come because of that very thing. But we must be willing to get to the point where we forgive, just as God has forgiven us. If God held us to the standard of perfection that the law demands, all of us would be condemned. In fact, we are, by nature, condemned. But that's where the gift of Jesus Christ comes in. Because it's given us that avenue where we can be rescued from that condemnation. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about what it looks like if we get to the point of humbling ourselves. In fact, in our relationship with other people, he says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. I think we can all agree that killing is wrong. But then he goes on, he says, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, without a cause means without a cause related to God's standard, not yours. Okay? It means we're using our own standard. So there is really no cause. It's just my opinion that we're using to judge people. He says, but if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, my mom used to quote that to us when we were kids because we used to go around. I had two brothers and a sister, especially my brothers. We'd be like, you're a fool. You know, we throw that word around like it was nothing. You're a moron. You're an idiot. And, you know, you laugh and you, oh, that's just brothers being brothers. God's serious about this. We can't just say, oh, you know, it's just kids being kids. No, that's why we train our children. That's why God has given us his truth. And this is true for us as well as it is for children. If we treat each other this way, God says, you are in danger of hellfire. Why? Does that mean we've lost our salvation? No, if this is a pattern of our life that we treat other people with this kind of disdain, it means we don't have the love of God in us and there's no way we can be saved. In fact, he goes on in Matthew chapter 5, and he says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, go thy way, First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. 
So Jesus is saying, you can't even worship if you've got this problem with someone. If someone has offended you, or you have a grudge, or you've sinned against somebody else and you know it, you can't worship God. The psalmist says that in Psalm 66, 18. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It means if I know I've got sin that is undealt with, that is unconfessed, it is unforgiven at that point, and I try to worship God, my prayer doesn't go any farther than the ceiling, and probably not even that far. And Christ says, if you bring your altar or your gift to the altar, he's talking about the sacrifices that the people made in the temple, but that was their form of worship. And today we offer our sacrifices through our praise, through our prayer, you know, through our, our uh, just fellowship that we have with one another, through looking at his word together. And basically Jesus is saying, if you have something against your brother and you want to come to worship, forget about it. You can't worship God when you're not right with people. And we wonder sometimes as Christians why it seems like God is not answering our prayer. Here is one good answer. Because we can't treat people with love. If we're angry with somebody for something they did, if we're holding a grudge against somebody, we have just blocked our worship to God. Any communication we have with God. And the only thing he's going to hear at that point is a prayer of repentance from us. Because we're the ones that are wrong. And he says, if you don't make it right with God and with the other person, you can't worship God, and he's not going to hear your prayer. The point is this. You cannot live in selfishness and worship God at the same time. It's impossible. Now, we might start thinking in our lives, well, you know what? I didn't do anything wrong. I've tried to love these people, but they're just nasty. They just won't stop. Does that give us a right to treat them badly, to say bad things about them? In fact, if we truly are right in our actions to them, if we truly are trying to act in love, then we are in the perfect position to offer forgiveness rather than anger or frustration or arguments. Forgiveness, because that's what God offered us. Think about this. Why, again, do we get offended? Why do we get hurt feelings? Because we didn't get what we wanted from the other person. That's it. There's no other reason. We didn't get what we wanted. And if you get offended and get hurt feelings and hold those grudges, then you have just fulfilled what verse 1 of chapter 4 in James says. Where do the wars and fightings come? Because you are totally selfish. And we live that way. And in Matthew 5, Christ is saying, if you're judging someone, if you have a problem with someone, if they've sinned against you, if you've sinned against them, if you have hurt feelings, if you've been offended by this person, you can't worship God in that situation. You've got to go make it right. Put your, put your gift down before you get to the altar. You go fix it. Confess to God. Confess to the other person. Reconcile that relationship. And when everything there is right, 
and you know you've done everything possible that God expects you to do in love, then you can come back and worship him. Now, Christ said, don't wait. You fix it now. Before you even come to the altar, you fix it now, today. We can't wait another minute to make it right with God or right with people. Today is that day. Now, I can go on and I could talk about how we should truly be serving God with our life instead of doing what we want. You know, I could, I could talk about becoming serious about living a holy life the way God has called us to in the scriptures instead of living like the world. I could talk about being a testimony and taking the gospel to people that God has, has brought into our lives. We are the light and salt of the world. You know, we know all those things. But the question is, with all of that and all we've talked about, why are we not doing it today? Why is it not important to us today? If you are truly saved, you already know what God expects of you. He's held us in his word, and he continually teaches us. In Romans 12, all of that stuff that I just mentioned, Romans 12.1 says that's our reasonable service. That's just what can be expected for us to give back to God because of how much he's done for us. That's our reasonable service. So here's the point. As I've been preaching, obviously, there's been lots of scripture given to us and lots of principles. And we've been able to sit and think about our own lives and people that we have broken relationships with, and people that we're angry with, and people that we're having arguments with, or we have a grudge against, or we have hurt feelings because of something they've done in our lives that we didn't like. And whatever God is speaking to you about right now, you need to take care of it today. Don't say, well, I'll call him on Tuesday. I'm going to see him on Wednesday. It needs to be taken care of today. And that's where we get to James 4, 14 and 15, where James says, You know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. I think we miss this, the, the real emphasis in that verse. If you're not in James, go back to James 4 and verse 15, because I want you to see these words. James chapter 4, verse 15 we, we throw this verse around and we say, well, you know, we should say, if, it, if the Lord wills, we'll do this and that. That's true. But look at the emphasis. He says, for that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, what's the next phrase? We shall live. That means our life is completely determined by what God wants for us, not by what we want for us. Whether we live till tomorrow, is in God's hands. Whether we have another day is completely in God's hands. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. You are only guaranteed what God wills for your life. And we don't know how long that is. Remember, it's a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. It's like grass that withers away. And if God wants us to live till tomorrow, there's nothing we can do to prevent that. 
If God doesn't want us to live to tomorrow, there's nothing we can do to prevent that. Our life is completely in God's control. And we need to be more serious about thinking about that perspective. If the Lord's will, if the Lord wills, we will live. It's not up to us. That means whatever you need to do in order for your life to be right with God and right with others, you need to do it today. Because you may not have tomorrow to take care of it. Now, I'm sharing this with you because yesterday we were reminded all too clearly of this principle in a very jarring way. Yesterday afternoon, our family went to be with some dear friends to celebrate their daughter's high school graduation. There was some other people there. There was a couple that was there from, from Michigan, very close friends of theirs. And while we were there, the wife passed away in the middle of this party. She had no real serious health issues in her life. She didn't really have any other symptoms of anything except some heartburn. She went to lay down because she wasn't feeling good. And when they went to check on her, she was gone. You're not guaranteed another minute. We are not guaranteed another day. That's the point. And if we don't take the time that God has given us now to do the things that God wants us to do and to make our relationship right with him and to make our relationship right with others, you may not ever have a chance to do that. You cannot wait. Christianity and the Christian life cannot be built on procrastination because you're not guaranteed any other time except what you have right now. If you're not saved, today is the day of salvation. If you need to get your heart right with God, today is the day to submit to him. If you need to forgive someone, today is the day to forgive them. If you need to ask forgiveness from someone, today is the day to ask forgiveness. And I'm begging you, please don't let another day pass before you make things right. Because you may not have another day. God doesn't guarantee us a second chance. Right now is your opportunity to get right with God and to get right with other people. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, thank you that you love us and you've given us this warning that we have no idea how many days we're going to live or even if we have tomorrow. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us the importance of living today the way you want us to live, of yielding to you and submitting to you today in our lives everything and making our relationships with other people right in love treating them the way we should treat them because you don't guarantee another chance. Lord, this is important. You've told us that it's important, and I pray that you'd help us to make it important. Teach us to number your days as you've told us in your word so that we can truly live in your wisdom and in your love. I don't normally do this. I want to keep your heads bowed for a minute. We're going to just have an invitation very quickly. If there's 
someone you need to make sure you get right with, or if, there's, if, if it's God you need to get right with. This is a great opportunity. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you can do it in your seat. You can come forward. There's empty pews or, or the, the bench up in front. But I beg you, make it right right now before you leave this building. I'm going to ask my wife just to play a couple verses of a hymn, and then we're going to close in prayer. Our dear Father, we thank you that you are loving and patient, that you have shown mercy to us, and yet your word tells us that you will not always strive with man, that there will come a day when your wrath will be poured out, and there's a day in each one of our lives when we will meet the end of this earthly life. It may be today, it may be tomorrow, it may be years from now. You know, but we don't. And so, Lord, help us to treat each day as the most important of our life, to do those things that need to be done. I pray that you would go with us now with your blessing. Just keep us with your protection and provide for us through your provision. And Lord, make us walk in wisdom as we seek you. We thank you in Jesus' name.